0: And welcome to a special edition of our show, History on the Fox with Katie and Allie. Normally, it'd be just Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about women in history, some famous and some not. <laughs> <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Katie Hickman. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, hi. It's so nice to be here. Thank you.
2: We are happy to have you. Katie is a best-selling author of 10 books, a world traveler from a young age, and currently lives on a barge in the Thames River. She could talk to us about many, many things, but today she is here to talk about her book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Oh, about me, okay. Yeah. Well, oh, you did a pretty good introduction there. I'm wondering what is left to say. Uh, I'm I'm a Brit, as you can probably tell from my voice. Uh, I specialize in. I, I do a number of different things. So I write fiction, historical fiction. I I started writing travel books, and but my great love really is history, and my specialty is finding groups of women whose stories really interests me whose um you know testem- testimonies whose you know first voice person accounts have been ignored or forgotten or people thought because they were women what they had to say wasn't it wasn't interesting enough so my my job for many decades now has been to kind of you know get get bring these women out from the shadows and say look these were amazing amazing women and this is what they did and this is what they contributed to whatever the period of history may be Mm. Uh, in the case of bravehearted your your very own you know foundation missed the opening up of the west Mm -hmm. of the what hollywood would call the wild west of america
0: Perfect. Well, before we get deeper into your book, we do have a cocktail that we have to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is called Bravehearted. Um, so in a cocktail shaker, you muddle fresh plum and fig jam. And then you okay. add two ounces of mezcal, uh, which is like a smoky tequila. <laughs> Uh, one ounce of orange liqueur and juice from half a lime. And then you shake it, strain it into a cocktail um, glass with ice. And then you top with Topo Chico. So I thought oh that goodness. was Western-y. <laughs>
2: so, <cheers. laughs> All
1: right. Where's mine? Uh-huh. Where's mine? I'd like to know. It's in the,
2: it's in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously we're here to dive into your book. But we always like to give our listeners a little bit of a backdrop first. So let's set the scene What years does your book cover and what are the different groups of women that we're encountering in the West?
1: Okay, so the book starts in 1836, which was the the year that the first two white women made the overland crossing from the frontier, the American frontier, which that point was roughly where the border of Missouri is, all the way over to the pacific northwest to what is now oregon Uh, and then it really gets going in about 1840 these migrations begin and they carry on over over a number of years gathering steam and gathering steam and gathering steam and the book ends in 1880 because that was the year that the u.s census bureau declared that there was no frontier anymore so within that 40-ish you know period that 40-year period the whole of what we now think of as the west of america including the great plains that whole area was gradually incorporated into what we now understand as being the us and of course in 1836 the country was significantly smaller you were about a third of the size that you are now so you know that was a by anyone's standards an incredible feat so that's one aspect of it was the the extraordinary, I mean, really extraordinary resilience and bravery of these largely white emigrants uh, who went, not all of them. Some of them were free Blacks, some of them were enslaved Black people, and their stories are very interesting. But I also tried very, very hard to get Native American women's accounts as well, as a way of kind of holding up a mirror so that, you know, it, it, it's it's all very well to talk about the great bravery and resilience. But as you all know, the, you know, these Western migrations had a very, very um, catastrophic effect on most Native American tribes. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get that side of the story in as well. And I talk about African-American slaves and Chinese women who were taken into slavery and were in um, San Francisco. You know, I wanted it to be as diverse a group of women as I could possibly find. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think
0: you do such a great job of that, because I didn't realize how diverse the West was, especially when it comes to women. Um, But I would love to start with the Native American women, because obviously, they were there. And then we kind of Entered their space. (laughs) Um, So what were their roles like in their communities, and how did it change once the Western settlers began to infiltrate their land and change how they lived? Well,
1: I mean, you know, you're talking about a hugely diverse set of people. So there were more than 300 different tribes. I'm mm-hmm. sure you know this better better than me, probably more than 300 different tribes. And they varied a lot in size and power. So the Lakota people, for example, on the Great Plains had enormous amounts of horses and guns. They were very well equipped and they were able to really fight back very hard against the US military. Who entered the picture at a certain point. Um, in california just for example the tribes tended to be smaller and they were much they weren't equipped they would never seen guns before they had no horses they were mostly um um you know hunter uh, you know they 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 collected roots and berries and they hunted but they weren't they didn't hunt the great bison you know herds that you you had on the on the great plains and i think that white white commentators had a had a slightly skewed idea of what a um, Native American women's role was. They thought they saw Native American women as doing all the work while the men kind of sat around and, you know, smoked their peace pipes <laughs> or not. <laughs> and uh, But if you, if you read the Native American women's accounts, especially a wonderful woman who's my... Hero called Josephine Wagoner and she says quite categorically, "No, this is absolutely wrong. You know, the work was distributed equally. It's just it was, uh you know, women had certain things that they did, and men had other things that they did, principally hunting. And of course, uh, after um, eighteen eighty, when almost all Native, in fact, all I think, the Native American tribes were by then had been forced onto reservations, uh, and their their ability to hunt w- was much reduced. It was one of the reasons that they accepted to go onto the reservations because all the game had gone in the Great Plains. So the bison were extinct, 30 million of them, and a lot of the other game that they depended on, antelope and so forth, were gone. So the hunting opportunities were not there anymore. And I think that the roles of both men and women were really significantly destroyed uh uh by that because they 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 weren't able to hunt and hunting was such an enormous part of the of everything you know it was part of the sort of spiritual um spiritual identity that they had as well as it just putting food on the table and making you know making their teepees so it, it was a really it was it was it was devastating for them you know, there's no way to sugarcoat that yeah. it just it just was yeah for sure
2: I'm glad you brought up uh, Josephine Wagner, Um, because it's due largely to people like her that we have a lot of Native American stories. So can you talk a little bit about her efforts to make sure
1: that those stories were told? Yes, I I so would love to tell you about Josephine Wagner. So she was a biracial woman. Her mother was a hunk Papa Lakota, so the same tribe as Sitting Bull, who you all heard of. And her father was an Irish ex-soldier, you know, veteran of the Civil War. So she was biracial. Her father died young. She was brought up by her mother and grandmother. So she had a background that was, you know, she was brought up as a Lakota, Native American. Um, towards the end, she then married a, a, an American, a white guy, which is why she, we know as uh, as Wagoner, which is a, you know, it's not a not a Native American name. Mm-hmm. And she, towards the end of her life, you know, this is a very um observant interested quick obviously really intelligent little girl who observed all sorts of things going on amongst her people so she she grew up in the last summer that it was possible for these tribes to hunt freely on the great plains when there was still some bison and before they'd been moved to the reservation she was there at the time of you know what white people call custer's you know Custer's last stand, you know the um the Battle of the Big Horn, which they uh, called the Battle of the Greasy River, I think it's called, you know, so even though she was very young, she remembered all these incredible things that happened, and she had a, you know good memory, Native American history is very largely oral, so remembering things was very important. But towards the end of her life, and she didn't die until nineteen forty three she realized that all the elders. You know all the people of her mother's generation were all dying out, and if they when they died, all that knowledge was going to go with them. so she devoted about twenty years of her life to going around the reservations, talking to people, getting people to tell her their stories, and also at the same time writing down her own memories. so it's kind of a mixture of um lots and lots of little biographical notes about these famous warriors, I have to say largely men, but also her own recollections of what it was like to grow up as a hunk, papa. You know how you know what her mother did. You know, what, you know what the spiritual rituals were. And it's a, it's a really, really vivid, beautiful sort of poetically written account. It's massive. This book. I had a copy in my office the other day. I was going to show it to you. It's seven hundred and fifty pages long. And I even weighed it the other day. It's more than two kilos in weight. It's really heavy. And so this woman spent 20 years compiling all this stuff. Nobody wanted to publish it. She died in 1943. No one wanted to publish it. Her children tried, her grandchildren tried, her great grandchildren tried, and eventually they found an independent scholar. I'd like to give a big shout out to this woman called Emily Levine. Emily Levine, everybody, who spent something like seven years going through this huge amount of material. And eventually, in 2013, 70 years after Josephine Wagoner died, this book was finally published. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things you can say about that. But on my own personal level, if I had tried to write this book just a few years earlier than I did, I never would have had that as a resource. And it is, it, I, if you ever have a chance to get hold of a copy or look at a copy, I really recommend it. It's it's a, it's, um, it's a thing of beauty and it's really important because Native American written accounts are relatively rare. There are many, many more written by whites. And accounts written by women are very rare indeed. I'm not saying they don't exist, they do, but it's them really difficult to find. So mm. this woman, Josie Magener, is my absolute, she's the sort of heroine of my of my book. And I um, you know, some of the things she tells are sad. But some of the things she tells are really rather wonderful as well like you know like her upbringing you know what it was like to roam around in these enormous teepee villages what it was like to watch the hunt all those all those things um which she which she could write these eyewitness accounts it's, a, it's an amazing project
0: yeah well, we're so happy to meet her. I can't wait to put her on the list so we can do a whole episode on her for our yes, show. Absolutely. I'm
1: happy to come back and tell you all about I could I could, I could, I could go on for many hours about <laughs> um, One of the other kind of types of
0: women that we see, especially out West, and it's become almost like a stereotype that like if there are women out West, they're either like moms on the planes or... Sex workers in the saloons, <laughs> yeah. and so we, we know that there was sex work out there, uh, and there's one person featured in your story, um a ah Toy, who was a sex worker from Hong Kong who was known as the first Chinese prostitute in San Francisco. so can you tell us a little bit about her and what sex work actually looked like in okay. the frontier?
1: okay, well, ah toy, yes, she was rather extraordinary, Ah toy because she was trafficked from the chinese mainland as a prostitute it was very common you know this was during the time of the uh um, gold rush so gold was discovered as you know from your high school history in <laughs> 1848 and immediately the the news ripped around the whole world so people were going traveling the california trail but not until the following year in 49 but that people were coming from everywhere. They were coming from all over South America by ship. All the sailors in who were in their boats in the tiny, sleepy little port of what was then called, I think, it was called Yerba Buena. It wasn't even called San Francisco then. All deserted their boats and immediately went to the goldfield. So there was a huge influx of men uh, coming into this tiny town, and it and it just it just exploded in terms of population. So what would you get? You know, men who found their nuggets of gold, and in the early days they did, what do they want to spend it on? They wanted bars and they wanted brothels for want of a, a better way of putting it. And so anyway, the Chinese women were amongst the earliest sex workers in San Francisco. But uh, Artoi was, became rather famous because she, um, you know, she, I, don't, I don't want to glamorise anything about what it would be like to be a sex worker. But she always had a really good business head on her. So at some point she became, instead of being the sex worker, she ran her own brothels. I think she ran more than one of them as well. And the reason we know about her is because they started having these censuses. And so her her, her um, establishments, should we call them, were were in the you know we're in the census and you can see how many other women also chinese women were in that same house at the same time but she she her business didn't, didn't last very long because there were these uh you know sort of chinese gangs the tongs who came in and sort of they like the Chinese underworld and they took over everything. And one woman on her own would, however, you know, she must have been a pretty punchy lady, but her, you know, one woman on her own was no match to these groups, um, these underworld groups who basically took it all over. But I think, I think it was her who there was a rather wonderful um, it's quite hard again to find written records for these women because mostly they didn't write anything down. But I think Tom lived to be quite old and she lived to get, to get married. There was no stigma attached to being a prostitute in the Chinese uh, culture. You know, you were doing something for your family. You were doing it for the family honor. So actually it wasn't exactly a feather in your cap, but it didn't have the moral sort of de- degradation that white people would put on it. You know, prostitute was not acceptable in any kind of polite society. But our, our toy not not so. And there was a there was an article about her when she died. There was an article about her. There was a sort of a obituary about her in one of the in one of the papers. And she had retired somewhere on the coast in California, you know, with with a husband. So you know, her story had a, quite a happy ending. I don't think you can say that of many, many prostitutes <laughs> yes. who ended up in San Francisco. But hers is quite a a hopeful story. And there's some story about her collecting clams. Of a, you know, on the beachfront. So she had a peaceful, a peaceful, reasonably prosperous end to her life. So, mm. so our toy, I say. <laughs> yeah
2: So obviously we have Josephine and we have our toy, but was there any other woman that you wrote about in your book that really stuck out to you as just a really amazing character from history?
1: Oh my goodness. You know, they're all amazing in their in their ways. One of them Many extraordinary women it was a young American girl called Olive Oatman. I don't know if you read or saw a picture of her in in my book. So, Olive Oatman's family were attacked by a Native American tribe called Yavapai on their way to California. This tribe murdered all her family except Olive and a little sister, who were taken as slaves into this tribe. This was every white person's most dreadful nightmare. This happened to these two women. But about a year later, this tribe hadn't, I don't think they were very useful as slaves, you know, they weren't particularly strong. Uh, And so they were sold on to another tribe, the Mojave tribe, now in Arizona, who took them in and looked after them and treated them as their own. And when um, Olive was later ransomed, she later left the tribe and came back into white society, everyone was fascinated by her because she had these extraordinary tattoos on the corner, all the way from the corner of her mouth, all the way down to her chin, and also, but incidentally, on her upper arms. But of course, wearing Victorian clothes in the photographs you see, but you can't see that mm. uh, because she would, was would would only have been wearing a small loincloth around her waist when she lived with her mother. But what is extraordinary about her story is that it was t- a story of a real cultural assimilation which again was something that white people really feared you know that they, they didn't want their white young women to be happy living with a native american tribe that that was not the image that they were or they were wanting to uh, convey and so her story got into the hands of a ghostwriter this man called the reverend stratton who basically completely altered her. Her version of what happened so her version was these people took me in and they put they took they treated me really well in fact they saved my life during the famine uh, by giving me extra food and these tattoos are a symbol of my you know total alignment with the tribe in stratton's version it was a kind of uh you know it was it was a, it was a but the voice of white supremacists, basically, it was saying these are fiends and awful people and they're devils. And they took these two defenceless white girls and who knows what they did to them. You know, the implication was they were sexually molested. We don't know whether that's true or not. Um, we have no idea whether that's true. And so this, this story from being a rather hopeful story about redemption within this tribe and the love of this tribe towards this woman became poisoned. and channeled into this aversion, which was you know very very anti anti anti-native american and and i i always you know it's a very haunting picture of olive boatman if you if you look in my book you'll see this picture and she looks i think she looks rather haunted because i think it must have been so hard for her aged 16 or something having assimilated into this native american tribe to then have to go back into white society which was very different it was not didn't have the sexual you know i think the mojave were quite um sexually free they had quite a healthy attitude you know women sexuality was not something that had to be kind of hidden away and forgotten about and so there were things she could never talk about when she came home and i think that must have been terribly difficult for her and to see her story being completely taken over by this man who Marched her off on all these, you know, lecture tours. She became a star. By the way, she was like this media star, one of the first American media sensations. Because the newspapers, you know, it was a fantastic story, very much like. um I don't know if you're movie. Are you movie fans? Maybe some. Of, uh, there's a, a, the John Ford famous old movie called The Searchers, mm. which is about a man, the John Wayne character, who goes looking for his sister who's been taken captive by you know by indians as we used to call them and it's a quite a similar story very very similar story actually and it became one of this great the great you know when they do surveys of movies what's the greatest movie of all time the searchers it's quite often top of the bell amongst older people probably now because <laughs> it's quite an old movie um but i was always very fascinated by that story because there is such a tension there some good and some bad, you know, between the, the two halves of your your nation's story, the, the white half on one hand and the Native American on the other. Yeah. And yet there was a point at which it was quite hopeful.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned Olive, because I know she's been on our list of people to do forever. Has she? You're right, the of part is so... It just sticks with you mm-hmm. her image yes. and yeah so i'm so glad you talked about her because i love i think her story is fascinating um but so throughout this you've mentioned some of the sources some of the things you've done to maybe research these women um but we always like to ask people did you get to travel for this research did you ever come over and do a tour of any you know part of the frontier <laughs> well
1: funnily enough <laughs> i, I... I did. Um, Just before I started writing, I came with my husband and we did a road trip. We did, you know, from Independence, Missouri, exactly like it is on the map, to California, because I have a brother-in-law, brother and sister-in-law who live in San Francisco. So we thought we'd do that. And this September we're coming again to the states to do the oregon trail because i just couldn't <laughs> let go of that idea and i just want to see that route for myself mm-hmm. and luckily my husband's really keen on road trips so so yeah we're kind of coming to september where are you guys based by the way we are in baltimore maryland um oh, okay. Yeah, Former yeah, colonial, yeah. history. yeah, coming yeah. to visit <laughs> you. Uh
2: huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And time, I'll
1: have to find something to do about
2: Baltimore.
1: Mm-hmm. Baltimore. It's a, it's I a, a so. though. Yeah.
2: During the war of eighteen twelve, we were called a nest of pirates. <laughs> <Are> you, <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, in the newspaper As a
1: compliment, if I were you,
2: I love it. <laughs> That's so. what I'm saying. Yeah, it was shortly after um, the Madison White House was burned down um when the forces
0: were marching north. <laughs> Let's go get that nest of pirates. <laughs> <I'm> like, yeah. <laughs> but we do have our connections to the West too. I'm actually related to Wyatt Earp. So that's like my family. Oh, yes that
1: is very cool. Oh, that is so cool. I wish I was there to shake your hand. I know. <laughs> how, you, how through through Okay, tell me more.
0: Tell me more. So it's from my uh, grandfather's side of the family, and I know there was it because I'm Catherine Elizabeth. So there was at some point a Catherine Elizabeth herp that I'm named after. Um, I know it's one of those things I've been told. I was actually trying to look up the family tree today to like trace it back, but <laughs> but yeah. But I know that it's on my um, grandfather's side of the family. That, that
1: is really cool. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic oh well you are you are right you know your your family were right there they were right there at the the heart of everything yeah i have to say i had i won't exactly say it was fun i was about to say i had so much fun researching and writing that but you know it's it's a very very strong story there there are some things which are amazing about it and other things which are absolutely heartbreaking about it as well but but my goodness My goodness, it was interesting. It really was, it was absolutely amazing. And um, anyway, I can't wait to do the Oregon Trail. Yes. (laughs) We are all better equipped than most of them were. (laughs) yeah
0: well and that's the thing about this book you know we've talked about so many women already and we're only scratching the surface so we can't wait for people to go out and buy your book uh it came out in last october October 2022 2022. um so it's available uh but where can people find it where can they find you and your other
1: books and your other books Mm -hmm. uh they can find uh, i have a website katiehickman.com uh, where you can find stuff about all my other books, and um, they should be able to find it in. You can definitely get it on Amazon, but I think there are a lot of independent bookshops that will sell. In fact, when I do my my road trip, I'm about to go and do a lot of. um It's kind of like an unofficial book tour because I'm going to be speaking at the uh, Boulder Colorado Festival in the middle of um, September. Jaipur, is weird, it's called the Jaipur Literary Festival of Boulder, Colorado. I uh, think it's it, organized by an Indian team, mm-hmm. Indian as in India. Um, I'm going to be uh, doing an event at a bookshop in um, Denver. Uh, and I'm going to be signing loads of books in bookstores all the way down the Oregon Trail. So in all those lovely sports and things like that, that all have great bookstores you'll be able to find it there but you know what in i i like to encourage people to use their independent books bookshops Mm -hmm. uh but if you can't do that it's on amazon
2: yeah and request it at your local library Mm -hmm. and if you're a teacher at your school's library oh yes, there (laughs) needs to be more. More books about women in school libraries, yes. for sure. <laughs> the best, the They're best. not reports
0: about Amelia Earhart. <laughs> uh, the jar. best
1: compliment <laughs> I had, the best remark I had, in fact, from an American reader was, oh, this should be on the school curriculum. I thought, yes, that would be so great. Because all the history is there. Yeah. I mean, it's not only about women. It's about, obviously, about the men as well. So anyway, it's, uh, there are some absolutely eye-wateringly amazing stories in
2: them well I'll tell you you have a shoe-in now because I am a history teacher
1: in America oh good, oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> see what you can do put right. it on me Are oh, you indeed right do you teach the westward expansions do you teach the west? yeah eighth grade,
2: eighth grade is the westward ex- expansion so I teach seventh grade um but okay. our eighth grade
1: teachers do okay and mm-hmm. seventh grade is because we don't have grades here. What? How old are they?
2: Um, they're about twelve and thirteen. Oh, seven. okay,
1: okay. So that, yeah. So they're a uh, good, good age. It is. It good is age, a very I understand. good. Understand. <laughs> well, thank you so
0: much for coming on. Uh, this was delightful, and we can't wait for our people to go out and uh, learn more about where they might be from. <laughs>